You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just love you and we come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. And Lord, when you walk into a room, the room is never the same. When there's been loss, you restore life. When there's been uh, broken relationships, you heal. You bring mending to our hearts and our souls. You're the great physician. You walk into a surgical unit, you take the hand of the physician into the great physician's hands and you guide him. We thank you, we praise you that you heal families and marriages, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren. We thank you that you heal nations. We pray, dear Lord, right now as we come to your word, that, Lord, you'll speak to our hearts even in this moment. And we pray, dear Lord, and I ask you, dear Lord, to cleanse me. Forgive me, Lord, of thoughts or deeds or words that have been said. Let me be a tool in your hand, a vessel that you can use. And, Lord, that our hearts would be receptive. And we look, dear Lord, to what you'll say to us today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The message this morning is, um, to be honest with you, is a a little different. And uh, I I may even depend on my notes, perhaps a little bit more than I normally do, because uh, I'm slightly uncomfortable preaching this message. So let me just go ahead and kind of get you ready for it. I want to make some statements and, and, I, and I want you to listen to me because this is kind of a post-election sermon and uh, just some things that I saw as we're closing out the book of Nehemiah. Today we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 13 and so we're kind of uh, just brushing over 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12, even 10, 11 and 12 that deal with genealogy, deal with some matters. But in chapter 13, God really spoke to me. And I almost titled this sermon, Trump, an unlikely leader, with a question mark. Because you and I know that we're living in a day in America right now where the country is very much divided. Um, Right now, people are marching and rebelling against the results that have come out this past Tuesday. And in some ways, the nation and even the world has been shocked. And so I want to make some statements. I want you to listen to me. First of all, because I wrote them down, throughout the primaries, throughout this whole last couple of years, throughout the primaries, while some of pastors may have been trying to give counsel from the pulpit, I did not. Throughout the election, uh, I would make you aware, I hope, of critical, moral, biblical issues that we as Christians should be concerned about. But you never heard me promote or try to introduce a candidate or a political party or anything else. I believe that it is the responsibility of every Christian of every follower of Jesus Christ to be aware of the issues that pertain to moral questions or biblical teachings. I think that's critical. For example, same-sex marriage uh, has now uh, been passed uh, and authenticated by our government, by our judicial process. And you know me when it comes to the LGBT movement and even this issue of same-sex marriage, you know that I've always been Christ-like when it came to the issue of homosexuality. Um, You'll never find anyone out of the gay movement that would ever say that I've been unloving. I've always tried to be understanding. And yet you've also heard me make it clear that the Bible has a very clear definition about marriage. And it is not the government's right 
to redefine marriage based on society drifting and shifting as it's been doing. This is a cultural institution that was established by God in the very beginning, and so we have to recognize that. The uh, president, President Barack Obama, the present administration, you have never heard me disrespect him in his eight years of office or nearly eight years. You've always heard me say that I love him. I love his family. Many times I'll get into this sanctuary and I will pray for our president. And yet you also know because of where I stand on the Bible that I've at times not disagreed with his views as to some of the issues, such as, again, marriage, same-sex marriage, LGBT movement, um, the freedom of conscience, of religious conscience, the, the, the state of Israel, or even the present stance of our president on the, the abortion issue and on partial birth abortion. Though I've never disrespected him from the pulpit, uh, I've always respected the office that he holds, and I will do that. And I challenge you always to do that as well. I didn't march when he was elected as president, and I didn't get out and rebel or march when he was re-elected as president. I accepted the will of the people because we live in a democracy, and this is what distinguishes us from the third world. This is what distinguishes the first world from the third world. One of the questions that I often get in Zimbabwe is how we navigate through our democratic process of electing our leadership without the rioting and the revulsion, the, the rebellion. And, and I've often said it's because we are a moral nation and we understand our government and you have to wonder what's happening today. In 2012 election, when President Obama was re-elected to his second term, I was heartbroken. It was not because of the president, the candidate, the parties, and, and not because of the results. It was because of the platforms that the parties were standing on. Uh, I was concerned about some of the stance of our government, which I believe politically would put us in a direct confrontation with a holy God. In other words, our nation was moving in a direction on moral issues that would put us in a direct confrontation with God. Now today we sit on the other side of another election, the evangelical community by an 80-85% margin has voted for a candidate that I believe that they argued, they wrestled with, they grappled with, they went through a great deal of struggle trying to come to that conclusion. I think in all honesty they saw this as the only alternative in a year and in, a, and in an administration that would decide the direction of the Supreme Court. The candidate who won would either, at worst, elect one Supreme Court judge, at best, possibly three. Unlike 2012, the Hispanic percentage of votes shifted. African-American votes shifted, a 5% shift, primarily among African-American men who recognized that regardless that the candidate that was being chosen was a viable alternative and not the best, but it would have to be accepted because of where we are as a nation. Why is this so critical? Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a book called Democracy in America. It is a classic. In that book, he was sent by the French. And basically, he was trying to figure out why America at such a young age had become so great. It had not only become great, it had become great very quickly. And Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America came back to the French and he basically said that America is great because America is good. That our democracy only is effective and only works because you remember that it was called the grand experiment. It had never been done before. Even among the British, 
the monarchy, kings, even in Africa, tribal chiefs and leaders. It was a direction of government that they called the grand experiment and everybody thought that it would fail. And when the French sent Alexis to Tocqueville, he came back and he said, democracy and America is great because she's good, morally good. And that's how democracy works. He went on to say that her greatness was also linked to the fact that her pulpits flamed with righteousness. That part of it was the, the, the church. If Alexis de Tocqueville had a concern when he went back to the French, it was this, the Supreme Court. He believed that democracy, republic, Congress, the separations of power, executive, judicial, legislative. He believed that it could work and it was working, but the danger was the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court was like a watchdog and the watchdog would only be effective if it were kept within its boundaries. If it got outside of its boundaries, its perimeters, then it would threaten the very government that it was to protect and the very people. I wrote down today, we sit at a precipice. We are at a moment when you and I must admit our nation is more divided than it's ever been. We have a leader who will take over in January with probably the most difficult task that has ever faced a president. Because in America right now, Two worldviews are colliding. They are not bumping. This is not a fender bender. America is divided because two worldviews are coming down the interstate in opposite directions at full throttle getting ready to crash. And the future of the America of America is weighing in the balance. Simon Jaina, Mafundis Jaina stand. And, and, and Midian and several of the pastors sent word that Zimbabwe and the people there were praying for America. I remember years ago when Matt and I were going to Zimbabwe, we went and we visited in a home of a businessman and his family in his home there in Zimbabwe. At a certain point, we had eaten, we'd had fellowship, we sat down in their living room when all of a sudden she began to cry, this woman began to cry. She was Italian-Ethiopian. She had lived her life there in Zimbabwe. And she was talking about how bad it was. And I'll never forget what she said through her tears. She said, we thought America would save us, and you did not. The world is watching. We, close, we are closing the book of Nehemiah. It's been, a, to me, kind of a fascinating journey. And and yet, somehow, as I looked at this book, I thought to myself, and I know we're closing it rather quickly, but we have to do that in order to get ready to begin this journey through the chronological Bible. But as I read the book of Nehemiah, and I came to especially chapter 13, it made me really examine where we are as a nation and even whom we have chosen as a president. In Nehemiah chapter 13... And I, I kind of have to kind of look through here and, and let's just pick out, let's just pick out verse 15. In chapter 13, verse 15, uh, in, in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, there in the Old Testament, are you there? Say amen. amen. Nehemiah says, In those days I saw men in Judah treading fine, wine, uh, wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. He begins to talk about, down in verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? I just begin, as I was trying to rush and close out Nehemiah, I began to see some things about this man Nehemiah that were fascinating me because I realized that in a lot of ways this is kind of a tough individual. 
He's kind of a no-nonsense kind of leader. In fact, I'm, in, in fact, I'm looking on down here and I'm trying to find it. He said, uh, verse 21, on down in chapter 13, but I warned them and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? He's talking about those people who are giving him trouble. He was in a very difficult situation of trying to lead a nation toward reform. And it was not going to be easy. And he's hard. There's a toughness about him. You get down to verse 25. Nehemiah said, I rebuked them. I called down curses on them. When he talks about, when he talks about here about the Messianic line and the Jews and how those that had remained in the captivity had begun to intermarry. And he said, I rebuked them. I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. And I thought when I read that, I thought to myself, this is a strange, peculiar kind of a leader. But I want to make two points today. Number one, the book, of Je- the book of Nehemiah is about a mission. The book of Nehemiah is about, it's about the exile. Israel, the Jews had rebelled against God. So God had finally brought the Babylonians to bear down. The Assyrians, they had exiled the northern kingdom. The Babylonians would come into the southern kingdom and they would take young men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would take the youngest, the brightest, and the best. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the homes. They tore down the walls. They left a fragment of the population and they carried the Israelites into Babylon. And in Babylon, they lived for 70 years under the leadership of the Babylonians and men like Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians are eventually defeated by the Medes and the Persians, primarily the Persians. And as soon as the Persians are now the world-dominant force, they begin to allow the Jews, the exiles, the Hebrew people to return back to Jerusalem and begin to go back to their homeland and rebuild. When the Jew gets back, first of all, 13 years before Nehemiah, Ezra had led one group, one cycle. They went in cycles. And Ezra goes back and he begins to try to rebuild this nation that is in rubble and it's in ruin, but it is a very difficult task. There's nothing easy about it. Thirteen years later, this young man named Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah comes and he also is leading a cycle of people and he's there for one purpose, to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. He comes with the authority of the king. He comes with the supplies of the Persians. And in 52 days, he cleans up the rubble and rebuilds the walls because the walls were the security of the city and of the nation. And you may say, why is this important? And why do I care? Because every prophet had said, God's Messiah, his son would be born in Israel. The Jew couldn't remain in Babylon, settle down there. They had to come home. And so this book is about a mission. And Nehemiah is a unique individual. But but Nehemiah, when the walls are finished, kind of turns over to Ezra. And Ezra the priest, the prophet, begins to lead the nation to the Word of God, back to worship, back to repentance, and finally begins to implement reforms. This is a nation that is in transition. And when we get to these last chapters, they've accomplished a lot. Uh, when you look at, and, and, and uh, in fact, look at uh, chapter 12, verse 31. I want you to see this. This is good. And for example, chapter 12, and I know I'm kind of skipping around, but I'm trying to close out the book of, of Nehemiah for us so that we'll be ready to move into the CBT study next week. But look at, look at 12, uh, I think it's 31, chapter 12, verse 31. Watch this. He said, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. And then look at verse 38. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. 
They're marching. The choirs are marching on top of the wall. Now I want you to take a left and I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 3. Do you remember those critics? you remember Tobiah Sanballat? Do you remember those critics that were hounding and, and, and just making the, the, his life miserable, Nehemiah's life miserable? You remember in chapter 4, verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side and said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, it would do what? It would break down their wall of stone. This, in chapter 13, this is a nation that has been rebuilding. It is coming back together. In chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, they, they take the sanctuary. They begin to clean out the rubble. They begin to rebuild the temple, and they begin to make it what it once was. They begin to take care of the leadership. In chapter 13, 10 and 11, in verse 14, the abuse of the Sabbath that we, we read about a moment ago. They begin to get that right. Chapter 13, beginning with verse 27, verse 32, when he's pulling out hair and calling down curses, he's simply saying you can't infiltrate the messianic line. The Jew had to protect the messianic line. This is, the book of Nehemiah is about a mission. And the mission is to rebuild what the enemy had tore down. But it's also about a man. We see glimpses of a strong leader. But he's a complicated man. He has qualities that make him a leader. He has personality traits that lead him and guide him and give him the ability to keep his hand to the plow and to do what he's been called to do. But he also has flaws. Because every leader does. One of the letters that was written, and I thank God for what you did for me last night. I'm so appreciative. Sheila and I, we, she was reading those letters to me. We just sat there with tears. But one of those letters that was written by one of my children said this, Thank you, Dad, for your transparency. You have always been honest about your weakness, your failures, often, make, often making yourself vulnerable. And because you've done that, I'm a better person for it. Every leader has flaws. We've never elected a perfect president. They're all flawed. And when I begin to close out, trying to rush this closing of the book of Nehemiah, I begin to make some observations that you may not necessarily agree with, but I tell you, it would be hard-pressed for you to argue the case. Let me give you some of the traits of Nehemiah real quickly, because I think in some ways Nehemiah is a little bit of a reflection of the elected, newly elected president that will take office in January. Now, number one, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was cupbearer. Now, let me tell you what that is. That means the Persian king, the most powerful figure in the world, Nehemiah was right next to him. Always. Anything that touched the lip of the king of the Persian empire, the most powerful empire in the world, first touched Nehemiah's lips. If he drank it, Nehemiah drank it first. If he ate it, Nehemiah ate it first. Nehemiah was always with the king. He was the cupbearer to the most powerful figure in the earth at that time. And listen, and he was trusted more than any single figure in the life of the king. Some people would say, well, Nehemiah was just a slave. He was just a servant. I disagree. The king of Persia, the Persian king here, trusted him with everything. I think he saw within him, much like Pharaoh did in Joseph, those administrative uh, skills. And so the king of Persia gave Nehemiah his seal. He gave him his provisions. He even gave him his army for safe passage. He had earned the respect of the king and the queen I wrote down here, I don't think we get a sense that Nehemiah was necessarily, Reggie, I don't think he was deeply a spiritual man. In fact, I, when I read here about spiritual matters, 
I often see Nehemiah stepping back, almost being a little bit reluctant, hesitant. Perhaps it was because of his nature, but he was not the priest or the prophet. He was the governor. Let me say that. He was the governor, the executive leader of this nation that was picking up out of the ruins. But I don't get the sense that he was a deeply spiritual man. That was Ezra. You get the feeling he had a temper. Let me read to you. Uh, um, because in, in, it's often funny when you read Eugene Peterson's uh, the, the Message... In fact, let me just hang on to that for a minute. But I want to read to you out of his particular summation of that. Well, let me read it. Look at, look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. Let me just go ahead and read it to you. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, and I alluded to it a moment ago. It says, also in those days, I saw Jews had, who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, everybody look this way. The Ammonite and the Moabite were two children out of incestuous relationship. They were tied to the nation of Israel, but they had a very, very tainted past. But the real problem was when the exodus took place and the Jews were coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land, they asked Moses, sent messengers, and, they, and, and, and Joshua, they asked for clear passage to go through the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites, and they said no. Then they hated the Jews so much when they were returning, they even called uh, Balaam and to come and to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. They even tried to hire a prophet to speak down a curse. So there's not good feelings here. And so in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning of verse 23, also in those days I saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. All they knew was the language of Ashdod or some other tongue. So I took those men to task. I gave them a piece of my mind, even slapped some of them and jerked them by the hair. I made them swear to God, don't marry your daughters to the sons, and don't let your daughters marry your sons, and don't you yourselves do you yourselves married them either. Didn't Solomon, the king of Israel, sin because of women just like this? In other words, he said, you have failed to keep the messianic line pure. But when I read that, and when I was trying to close this out, I was thinking to myself, this is a strange leader. Much of his time is spent with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. He's kind of a peculiar kind of individual. But let me give you a principle. God uses strange leaders. He does. If you look at the Bible, you find murderers and adulterers. You find diamonds in the rough. People, men and women who are jagged around the edges, leading the nation of Israel. Winston Churchill was hardly what the English thought they needed when they were in World War II. If you go to London and you go up to his statue, he is a short, fat man. He has no endearing qualities, none whatsoever. And yet he was exactly what God would raise up to bring out of the rubble and the ruin of the United Kingdom a leader to go against Hitler. Because if we didn't deal with Hitler, eventually it would come back to haunt future generations. And principally because Hitler killed over six million Jews. Nehemiah, I wrote, is good at what he does. He administrates. The king entrusted him with his wealth, his resources, and even his army. Because he knew Nehemiah. God was in it. Nehemiah would be a tool in the hand of God, an instrument to protect his people and his kingdom from enemies who would dog Nehemiah's step every way possible. He was going against the powers who had not only established the ruins, but were profiting from it. He was a man with an agenda. Today, America's divided. People are rebelling. College students not going to class. People marching the streets. 
We look like a third world country this past week. I'm ashamed of America. But I would say one thing to our president. It is his responsibility to say publicly, America has spoken, go home. Stop the rebellion and the destruction of property or you will be arrested and put in jail because we will not be bullied. And Obama has it in him. I don't know how many of you saw, I I caught the last part of it, but Obama and President Barack Obama and incoming future President Donald Trump had met together there at the White House. Everybody thought, well, this is not going to go well. But first of all, if you remember when Bush was leaving the office and Barack Obama was coming in, it was very cordial. In fact, they developed a friendship. You watched a tenderness develop, even between President George W. Bush's girls reaching out to Barack and Michelle Obama's daughters in order to encourage them, leaving a letter there to encourage them when the times were difficult and their dad would be attacked through the media. But this past week, when they met for an hour and a half, it was cordial. At one point, Donald Trump said, Barack Obama is a good man. There were mutual respect at the close of the meeting, and I thought this was interesting. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama said, there'll be no questions. And as soon as he said that, and as soon as this meeting ended with him and Trump side by side, immediately cameras began to flash and questions were being shouted. And our president said, I said there'll be no questions. And he said it just the way I said it. And then he looked at the incoming president and he said, one thing you will learn. You will learn how to handle these people. And when you tell them no questions, you mean it. And then they left. Nehemiah, we've read over the last several weeks, was stepping into ruins. He he couldn't be bought. He was already at the top. He already lived in a palace. He stood with the king. He ate at the king's table. He uh, had the trust of the king to carry out the assignment that God was giving him to do. He was stepping into an environment where deep biblical spiritual principles had been compromised at best and trampled at worst. But let me remind you of a principle. God uses peculiar leaders to accomplish His will. He does. Let me give you some examples. Noah, an aged man with three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, was given the task of of building an ark in the desert where there had never been rain before. The Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. He labors and builds this massive ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. He and his sons day in, day out, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And then he watches as God sends his judgment. And it so weighed on his heart that when he came out of the boat, he collapsed and eventually was found drunk. God uses peculiar leaders. Abraham passed his wife off as his sister when he was in Egypt for political favor and protection. Isaac did much the same. Jacob, his name means underhanded, swindler. He's deceptive. He steals the blessing from his brother. He lies to his father. He runs away to his uncle Laban who could sell a three-legged camel to a Bedouin wanderer. God dislocates the tip of Jacob, breaks him, changes his name to Israel, and then calls this Hebrew people, instead of the Jews, calls them the Israelites. Moses, 
Moses murders an Egyptian, covers the corpse in the dust of Egypt, and is the story, the feature story on Cairo CSI. When God takes his hand and chisels into the stone of Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down, sees the rebellion of the people, throws a fit and casts what God had inscribed with his hand onto the golden calf and broke it into pieces and had to go back up the mound to get another copy. And God didn't Xerox it either. Whoopi Goldberg said that our future incoming president is a fool. We're all fools. We're all fools. But God uses fools quite often. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, God chooses the weak to confound the mighty. God chooses the foolish to confound the wise because that's what God does. Judges, Jephthah, the Gilead, the Gilead, Jephthah of Gilead was the son of a prostitute and a criminal on the run when God called him to lead the nation of Israel. Samson was a womanizer. He couldn't stay out of the bed with other women. Yet God called him to deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines. Saul, King Saul, had such an inflated ego when Samuel the prophet came and told him, he said, listen, God is rebuking you and God is ripping the kingdom out of your hand. Saul, King Saul, was more worried about how he would look to the army that was waiting on him rather than he was the purity and the goodness of his life. King David seduced a married woman, got her pregnant, and then covered it up with the murder of her husband. One of his own sons, he couldn't even handle his own household. One of his own sons, Absalom, amounted to conspiracy trying to overthrow his dad. New Testament doesn't get much better. Jesus wouldn't be called to pastor any church in America because when we find Jesus, he's plaiting a rope, braiding a whip, and twice clears out the temple of the religious men and women that were profiting from religion rather than understanding the meanings of the Old Testament. Doesn't get any better. Jesus is seen plaiting a whip, driving out the religious, surrounding himself with drunks and prostitutes and foul-mouthed men, and yet he changes the world. The Luke, when he writes about the Apostle Paul, when he talks about Paul, he said he was a madman, and yet God struck him down, blinded him. He had a, probably an eye ailment after that, and this tiny, small, ridiculous-looking figure shook the entire Roman Empire. Listen to me. God uses peculiar people. Ladies, don't be left out. When Joshua was leading the nation of Israel into the Promised Land, he sent spies. This time the spies were the right kind of spies. They went to Jericho, the first city that they would take. And those spies went to a brothel. Those two Hebrew Jews, those spies, those two Hebrew men went to a brothel and they hid out. And that brothel was run by a woman by the name of Rahab. And they told her, if you want to save your family, you hang a crimson thread outside the window. And when our armies come, because we're coming. And when we destroy this city, we will save. She was grafted into the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Persian Empire, the Persian king, a Hebrew girl prodded by her uncle bids for a spot on the king's harem, on his harem, looking for the opportunity to sleep with the king of Persia just one night and perhaps take the place of the king that had, of the queen that had been ousted out. Her name was Esther. She would please the king. She would eventually become the queen, the wife of a pagan king, the queen of her oppressors, and in time would save her people from wicked Haman. 
God not only uses peculiar men to lead, he uses peculiar strange women. A van kid engaged to a construction worker would become pregnant before she had ever had relationships with that man and would nurture in her womb the Lamb of God, the Son of God. God uses peculiar, strange people. When I came here, I was a sick missionary. Kmart was looking to buy this property. We were meeting in the student room over here, meeting our leaders. Not one pulpit committee member is here today. Dr. Gene Henderson said, before you go, ask the pulpit committee, do they plan on staying? None of them stayed. We lost a good bit, if not all, of our membership. We've seen an unbelievable, unbelievable hemorrhaging of members. Everyone thought this church would close, and who, a sick missionary, how could he be used? But God uses peculiar people. One writer said he uses clay pots, not porcelain china. And Nehemiah was a willing vessel. Was he perfect? No. I don't know about you, but I would never elect a man to govern a city, to be the mayor of the city, who throws a fit, pulls out hair, and curses people. But God does. Some have said that our newly elected president has a temper. They're concerned about his temperament. Well, truth, when I read Nehemiah pulling out hair and calling down curses, I think to myself, well, undoubtedly God uses those kind of people. James and John, those that were closest to him, were called sons of thunder. They wanted to pray down fire on a village, on a Samaritan village. We need some righteous indignation in this country. We're long overdue for it. We need some righteous indignation on issues that are, we understand what the scripture teaches. Steve Taylor pastored the First Baptist Church of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He preached on the right to life when he finished. He said that a little boy, a boy with Down syndrome, was sitting up toward the front, and this young man came forward, and he looked at Steve Taylor, and he said in his broken English, and I'll not try to copy him, but he looked at Steve Taylor. He pulled on his pant leg, and he looked up at him, and Steve Taylor said, it was a theophany. It was a life-changing moment for me. He said, when that little Down syndrome boy looked up at me, and he said, thank you, Brother Steve, for standing up for us. Because he understood that if a woman could see in the womb and see that the child was Down syndrome, she could just as easily abort that child and not be bothered with it. We need some righteous indignation today. Let me tell you something. I'm not worried about the college students, spoiled brats, walking the streets throwing fits. I'm not worried about those that pillage and destroy the inner cities of America. I'm not worried about them getting mad. I'm worried about me being mad. I'm worried about the body of Christ having some righteous indignation and understanding what it means when we talk about the right to life. Abortion. When you go into the womb and you secrete a saline solution, that baby, that baby is running, pleading, running in that womb trying to protect themselves from what is invading that womb. Partial birth abortion. It was discussed as if it was a frivolous piece of nothing. And yet we have the most liberal abortion laws in the world. We will, we will bring a baby partially out of the womb and go into the back of his skull and take his life and then birth that child. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Listen to that. That's the authority of God's word. Before, before Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. My friend, that is enough for every child of God. And you may say, well, I'm a Democrat. Well, then change your platform. Change your platform. 
I listened to the founder of Hobby Lobby this past week. He broke down several times as he was being interviewed. He wept and he cried. And they said, what was the deepest, darkest time in your life? He said, it was when we had to take a stand as a corporation against Obamacare. He said, it came down to a federal court on a Friday in a four to three vote because we finally begged and pleaded and got a full presentation of the, of, the, of the federal court. And when we did, they ruled in our favor on a Friday because that Monday we would have been paying $1.3 million a day in penalties to the federal government because we could not bring our employees under Obamacare because of the issue of abortion. I'm not worried about a man having a temper. I'm worried about leaders who don't. Years ago, Tim Chenault, I preached in 2001. I took a stand on race relations. I took a stand on the inner city. I spoke a very strong word to our denomination here in Mississippi Baptist. No one moved. Nobody got up. People sat glued and when it was, there were times that people moaned out loud. Denominational leadership sat there. Mark Bowman was sitting right about there in front of me at First Baptist Church, Jackson. And at one point said, I'll take my coat and throw over that clock they put on the first pew. Tim Chenault, who was going to seminary at New Orleans took a copy of that message, preached at the convention, carried it to the preaching classes down in New Orleans. They listened to that message. Some of them got a little haughty attitude and said, well, he sounds mad. Tim Chenault came back and said, well, I said, what did they say? He said, I carried that tape. We listened to the message in preaching class. He said, well, they said you were mad. I said I was mad. My friend, sometimes in the body of Christ, there needs to be righteous indignation. Winston Churchill was an unlikely candidate, but he was God's candidate, God's leader, because the world was faced with an evil they had never seen before in a man by Adolf Hitler. And it would require every nation, every ethnicity, every person, man, woman, black, white, every color to help fight it. We have an enemy in America, in the world today, who is far more dangerous than Hitler. It is Satan. Some people say, well, we may get in a war. My friend, let me tell you something. From Genesis to Revelation, there's war. In fact, God finally has to intervene because there's such a war that if it were possible, we would destroy ourselves. We live in a fallen, sinful world. We live in a place of evil. I remember when 9-11 took place. I remember when George W. Bush was walking through the rubble. And you could see in his face anger. And as he looked at the law enforcement, he looked at the fire department, and he looked at all these people who had lost some of their dear comrades, as he began to look at these families that were walking through the dust and the rubble, praying and pleading and hoping to God, George W. Bush said, we'll find them. Somebody says, well, he may get us in a war. In 9-11, when it took place, I'll never forget where I was and what happened. I came into this church. I walked down this hallway, walked into that office. Tim Chenault, Irene, Eloise, and our staff was sitting in there. They had found a TV that we used downstairs. They had rigged it up, and they were watching as these planes had plummeted, had gone into the Twin Towers, and then the Pentagon, and then finally the flight in Pennsylvania. And in that moment, we thought, God, what's happening to us? 
We couldn't identify our enemy. It was like a sniper. They were shooting at us, and we didn't know how to begin. We grounded all flights. We basically brought the entire nation to a standstill, if not the world. But I remember Gary Blakeney. Gary Blakeney, who was on staff here. Gary Blakeney, who works with Southern Electric. Gary and I began to stand up. Man, we were just pacing in that office. Tim Chenault, we were all just pacing in that office. And Gary said, uh, we, we, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. He was thinking about Jer- Jeremy, his son. He has two children, Trish and Jeremy. And he was thinking about Jeremy because Jeremy was at the age, just like Will and Wes, he thought to himself, Jeremy's almost to the age that he could be, that he could be drafted. This war will require my son. And Gary looked at me, and I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking about Ledge and Jeffrey. And Gary looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, let's go to the recruiter. Maybe we can trade off our life for our sons. Would you do that, James? You better believe it. Some people say he may get us into a war. If there's a war looming, I believe Ledge would rather fight it than Titus. I believe Stan would rather fight it than Abel. And I believe that Russell would rather fight it than Maxine. And before you laugh at the fact of Maxine, let me remind you that women are now in combat. And I don't agree with that as a former officer in the military. So how do we conclude a book How do we conclude this message, regardless of your political platform, regardless of your candidate, whether your candidate won or lost, you are commanded by Scripture today to pray for your newly elected president and to be a model Christian citizen. In 2012, I was heartbroken. I told you that. I didn't go up to Washington and march around it. I didn't quit pastoring this church. I didn't call him all kinds of filthy names and be disrespectful of his particular party or platform. I prayed for him. And I sought to be the best pastor and the best leader and the best dad and the best grandfather and the best husband and the best citizen that I could possibly be. I wanted to do everything I could to make Barack Obama's presidency as productive as possible. And where he and I disagreed on moral and ethical and biblical issues... I prayed that God would bring him to repentance. But I knew this. God uses peculiar people. Community developers in the city of Chicago. An African American to become the president. I trusted God. God gave me a scripture. And I want to close with this. And I want you to stand And I want you to see this passage, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And I'll read this and then we'll close this message out. Because the principle is very clear in Nehemiah. God uses some strange people to lead the nation, to lead people. God does some things that sometimes don't make sense. And maybe we would have liked somebody different. Maybe even Republicans, they would have probably loved to have had somebody different. But they got Donald Trump. Now what do we do? Well, when I went to the Buffalo River in 2012, and God just reminded me of this this week, just impressed by the Holy Spirit. After the 2012 election, because remember, Obama had made it clear that he was pro-same-sex marriage and had the most liberal partial birth abortion uh, law uh, beliefs of anybody that had ever filled the presidency. So I struggled with that, even though I loved the man. I think I would enjoy meeting him, fellowshipping with him. I went to the Buffalo River. I carried my kayak, camped there for a week, got before God, began to pray to God, began to ask God, God, what do I do now? And God began to impress upon me. And I'd already told Sheila this. I said, Sheila, I feel like this. I feel like God's called me to go to every state capital and to pray over our nation. So I left in my 2010 Toyota truck And I went to all 50 capitals. I flew to Honolulu when they had a volcano erupt, an earthquake, and two hurricanes, one behind the other. I went to Juneau, Alaska and flew to Juneau, Alaska. I walked in Tallahassee in a hurricane. I can't tell you some of the strange things that happened to me. You can go to the blogs site and you can read it, but there were supernatural events that happened. When I got to When I got to almost to the end, 
I flew to Juneau, Alaska. I attended First Baptist Church, Juneau, Alaska. I sat through the service. Afterwards, I learned that the pastor had cancer, and as I understand, he has since died. His wife was playing the piano. Sweet, precious couple. Afterwards, they said, we want to take you to eat. We went to eat. She looked at me as we were sitting in a restaurant in Alaska. She said, you're the fourth one. I said, what? She said, you're the fourth one. I said, fourth one what? She said, you're the fourth person that God told to walk around every state capital and to pray. And then Franklin Graham, the son of the most powerful evangelical figure in the world, and perhaps in the history of the church next to the Apostle Paul, felt led to do the same. This is the passage that God brought me to and that I read and prayed. Remember, I spent three days in D.C. I walked around the national capital praying and reading this passage that God had given me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings. Now you can put president there, for president, and all those in authority. Now watch this, that we may live what kind of lives? Peaceful and quiet lives in all what? all holiness in the NIV, godliness and all holiness and all godliness and holiness. This is what? This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I said to myself, God, I, 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 I and the Ainsworths knelt at the Supreme Court building and they told us we had to leave. An African-American security guy came down. He looked at us and he said, you could tell he was a Christian. It was just grieving his soul. He said, you can't pray here. I said, you mean a former officer in the military can't pray? He said, you can't do it here. So we went down to the edge and we, we knelt we were leaning, we were on the sidewalk, and if you could think of this edge here, it was the curb around the flowers and the shrubbery, and we were touching that. He came back down. He said, you can't touch that rock curb there. He said, you'll have to be on the sidewalk. We backed off on the sidewalk to pray for our government and our Supreme Court before long people begin to stop and drop praying with us. President Barack Obama's responsibility now is to lead this nation in this transition. It won't be easy. Pray for Incoming President Donald Trump, there's no telling what he faces. Pray for him. Trust God. Trust God. And may they both recognize this, that those in authority may help us so that we're able to lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. God chooses peculiar leaders. A man after his own heart slept with a married woman and murdered her husband. He was the king of Israel. You and I have a responsibility right now, first of all, is to give our life to Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, then the first step you can do by helping this nation, 
Hey, listen, you know, I, God convicted me. So flippant. Well, you know, we may not make it. We, and I'm getting some ringing here. We may not make it. We may, something may happen, this or that. You know, flippant. Well, let me tell you, while we're being flippant and talking about, well, you know, America may go down the tube. We may not make it. We're going to go out and tear this country apart and rip up and pillage and do whatever. Let me tell you something. Islamic extremists, you want to know what they do with the LGBT movement? You don't want to know what they do with the prisons? Do you want to know what they do with criminals? Do you want to know how, if you want your government, do you want this nation led by them? Do you want it led by a communistic government that takes your Bibles and burns them, piles them up and burns them and tears this building down and puts something else here? You know, we get flipping about it. Well, it may not. Well, let me tell you something. Before we get too flipping about it, go downstairs. Look what weighs in the balance. Your grandchildren and my children, let me tell you what they're banking on. They're banking on that you and I get our act together. This, case, this nation comes together. And we continue to be the light in a very, very dark world. That's what, they're, that's what they're banking on. And let me tell you something. If we don't, it's not their fault. It's ours. And for all those that are Think abortion's not a big thing? I've been in ministry nearly 40 years, longer than some of you have been alive. You know what I told him about 40 years ago? I said, if you, because I said, if you don't take a stand on abortion, euthanasia's coming, mercy killing. If, if a Down syndrome baby can be identified in the womb and be aborted, then who's to say that a person in a nursing home will not eventually be killed, their life taken? Oh, that'll never happen. The Bible says this, if you and I, if we sow the wind, you know what God gives us? A whirlwind. Sow the wind, we'll reap the whirlwind. My kids, when we were in church, they'd get a little upset. Lady came up one time and said, well, my child, you have to understand, my child's different. They get, they're high, strung, and nervous. I said, well, when I was a little boy, my dad carried me outside. He got more high, strung, and nervous than I was. God can do that too. Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? These are days that you couldn't pay me to walk out of here and not know for certain that I am a child of the king and to know that he's in control. So if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. Jesus, here I am. I repent of my sin. I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive me. Others in this room, you may be here. This is a place to plant your life. We're trying to solve the race issue. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be a viable witness in a transitional community. That's what we're trying to do. It's a good place to plant your life. So whatever God may lead you to do today, and you may not be led to do anything, and that's fine, but may you pray right now for this nation and both our presidents, the one going out and the one coming in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray right now that you wrap your arms around this group of men and women and young people, that you remind us, dear Lord, of what is at stake. First of all, Lord, we want to pray for our president. We pray for President Barack Obama. We pray, dear Lord, that you might give him strength and courage right now. Though he may not agree with the outcome of the election, though another party may soon control the White House. May he understand that there's something far more of greater value and that is what this country stands for and what she means to the rest of the world. President Obama said, I may not be judged correctly now, but history will judge me. Well, yes and no. Eternity judges us because what we do now will ring out through eternity. So we pray today for our president. We ask that you encourage him. You strengthen him. You give him such a strong resolve to be able to lead this country toward a peaceful transition of leadership. We pray for Michelle. We pray for his two precious girls. We ask that you will protect them for years to come. We pray, dear Lord, that you will watch over 
the newly elected president, President Donald Trump. We ask you, dear Lord, that you will encourage him, that you will not allow us to be caught up in the lies and the innuendos, that, Lord, we might just simply accept this man and right now begin to pray for him. We pray that you'll give him courage. Make his heart soft. Help him, dear Lord, to understand the difficulty of the task to drive him to his knees, not as a business man, but a broken man who says, God, this is, this is your nation. I need you to help me. We pray, dear Lord, that we might be model citizens, peacemakers. The Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. May we be peacemakers in our work, on the streets, in restaurants. May we do everything that we can to be a part of a peaceful process. But may we understand that only by the Prince of Peace is there real peace. God, may we as a nation come back to you. May we return to our spiritual moorings and be what you've called us to be. And Lord, we pray right now if there's one here that doesn't know you. These are uncertain times. May they come today. If there's someone here that saw a moment ago as Shelby and Ayla came forward and, and gave their life to Christ and then followed today in believer's baptism, if they see that and they say, that's what I want to do, may nothing keep them from doing that today. There may not be a tomorrow. God speak. We pray this in the name of Jesus.